It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're talking with Naomi Wentworth of the Compost Group. She's an engineer by trade and a local government sustainability planner who decided to create a composting company to fill a need in her community. Naomi has been, and I love this, a rooftop solar structural design consultant and was the City of Oakland, California's Sustainability and Energy Efficiency Fellow in 2015-16. Thanks for being here, Naomi. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, we have never met, but one of my apparently devoted listeners turned me on to you and the compost group. And when I looked you up, the first thing I saw was this image of you leaning against this, what I can only describe as like a giant composting tumbler, which is really bigger than a cement truck, I would say, from from the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about the compost group in a minute. But first, where did your love of composting come from? It comes from a very nerdy place. So like in the right place. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Engineering background, but. I really fell in love with local government sustainability planning. Like you said, I worked for the city of Oakland and then did some side consulting for a whole network of local government sustainability planners to try to help them, you know, understand their greenhouse gas emissions and then reduce them through various policy levers. I was really drawn to composting because, you know, these local government planners, they have so much work to do to create a sustainable city and so much work to do in areas that they don't necessarily have jurisdiction over. So, you know, electric transportation, electrifying the energy sector, all these major things that don't really come down to the city, but composting is really simple and it reduces so many greenhouse gas emissions. Methane is, we use different metrics, but on an immediate time frame, it's up to a hundred times more potent than carbon dioxide. If we can reduce methane emissions, that's so huge. It just buys us a lot, a lot of time to reduce emissions from all the other sectors. So that's kind of what drew me in was this idea of reducing methane. And then once I kind of learned more about composting and all of the major benefits it has to, you know, your garden, to society as a whole with the jobs, creating, making sure nutrients are local. I'm just, now I'm in it. There's no leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I learned something new about methane that I didn't know the other day when I was listening to a radio show that CO2 is kind of a permanent greenhouse gas, but methane actually dissipates after 12 years in the atmosphere. And I didn't know that. And and it was the kind of thing like, oh, there's hope. We can get rid of the methane and then the, the sky will open up a little bit more and let some of those greenhouse gases out so it won't trap. It's, it was, I got really excited. Have you heard of that? And are, what, what excites you about I have, that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually, I went to Scripps Oceanography for grad school under climate science and policy. So I dug into methane, just really nerded out and kind of... <laughs> got out of that program and was like, I'm going to tackle methane because it doesn't necess- it doesn't just go away. It oxidizes into carbon dioxide. So oh, yeah. then we blanket our planet with something that is way less potent than methane. Like it does 
oxidize after eight to 12 years, but mm-hmm. then it just turns into carbon dioxide basically. Ah, I see. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we want to get rid of it. We need to get rid of it. We need to yeah. absolutely get rid of it. Uh, so there's, there was this guy who the article I was, or the radio show I was listening to was a guy who came up with a significant way of mapping methane leaks on the planet and they're flying over states and finding the places and going to the companies who are doing it. And, and it, and it's, uh, they're focusing mainly on the oil, you know, oil and gas, because that's where the big, the big leaks are, but certainly compost landfills, all of that is a huge contributor and we can do something about that. So that excites me to be talking to you about this. (laughs) Yes. Now, a little diversion. Do you have a garden? And if so, what does it look like? I do. Part of actually the reason I wanted to start a composting company is that I'm an apartment dweller. So I have, you know, a small, a small garden on my patio, Mm -hmm. but at our composting site, we have a variety of test gardens that is just really exciting me right now. So we have one with you know, kind of like the best organic soil from Home Depot and then a garden with basically just our compost mm-hmm. um, and some of our overs mulch and then a variety of different beds where we combine them or, you know, add compost tea and stuff like that. Yeah, we've been gardening like mad. <laughs> <laughs> and are you documenting the results from all of those different beds? We are. We are. It is truly astounding the difference when you have biology in your garden versus trying to do everything chemically. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can kind of study it all day, but then when you see it, it's like, wow, I don't think I'm getting, if, if this ever goes to flower, I'm, I'm probably not getting the nutrients that I need from this Home Depot garden. Right. So sad. (laughs) Yeah. I tell you, you get what you pay for people. It is important to spend your money on soil and compost. That's the best thing you could do. Cause it's really, I've seen the results of, of really cheap compost. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't do the kind of thing that the biologically active stuff can do. So yeah. We are going off on so many tangents. I can't, I can't wait. All right. Uh, now, so you're in San Diego, right? And so what's your hardiness zone down there? What's it look like, your space that you have uh, in this test garden? So we're in San Marcos, which is a little bit inland um, and North San Diego County. It is hot. Um, I'm pretty sure we're 11A, but you should fact check me. I have to look it up every time. (laughs) But yeah, so I live a bit more coastal where we get, you know, the morning dew and stuff like that. But San Marcos, 8 a.m., it's hot. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So are you using any uh, extra mulch or shade cloth or anything like that to take care of the plants during hot weather? Yeah. Yeah. We just add another layer of mulch and we make sure that we do deep waterings in the mornings, especially on the hot, hot days. But what, what I've found in these two test gardens is I can deep water our compost garden and for days, even in the heat, it'll be fine. Whereas the Home Depot garden, you can see the leaves are yellow and they're begging for water. (laughs) I know. All right. So let's talk about the compost group and how it began. Tell us what this is and what this decentralized composting system of hubs looks like. Composting is basically illegal. (laughs) It it drives me crazy, but it takes about, 
you know, five years and millions of dollars in permitting fees to create any sort of regional compost facility. And then you run into all of these issues with people not wanting it in their backyards. Right. NIMBY. Um, yeah. So the goal of this decentralized network is basically to go through all the permitting loopholes where we can compost on under 750 square feet of land, which means that we don't have to go get a permit. Um, but we're doing it in a vessel, which means none of our neighbors even know that we're there. There's no odors or pests or anything like that. And we can just crank through food waste. We compost between like two and four tons per day, depending on the weight of the material. Um, and then it only stays in our vessel for about three days where it reduces or eliminates all the pathogens getting up to temp. And then we take it out to cure, but we're, we've just got very high throughput, small footprint system. So our pilot facilities at Cal State San Marcos, it's a really good option for, you know, places like universities where they have a ton of food waste and they're getting kind of reamed by exclusive franchise haulers to send it to landfill even. Right. Um, So so yeah, we kind of set up shop anywhere that allows us, Cal State San Marcos, we just have a little gravel yard right next to a parking lot. Nobody was using it. <laughs> They're like, sure, you can set up there. Oh, nice. Um, and we take, you know, all of their dorm and dining facility scraps and then have extra room for the surrounding community. So it's pretty fun. And tell us how that system works. Cause I know you're, you're, you have clients who bring their scraps to you or you collect them. How, what does that look like? Yeah. So in terms of composting hubs, we just have our pilot facility at Cal State San Marcos right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few more in the pipeline that I really hope goes through. Um, cause it would just be fun to have a whole network of them. We collect primarily from kind of the larger commercial entities. So big hotels or grocery stores, stuff like that. We go pick it up and then bring it to our compost hub. Nice. And do you have a shredder? Do you shred the waste before it goes in or you just throw it in as is? We throw it in as is. Oh, okay. Is, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's because we need the airspace. We need kind of larger particles so that it does not go anaerobic. That is a big, 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 big composting no-no. So I want bigger particles so that we can have a lot of different um, spots for airflow. Okay. Well, my husband will be happy to hear that you don't shred your waste because we have that argument all the time about smaller is better and, you know, particle size matters and stuff like that. It but, is. Um, yeah. You know, but for, backyard is great, but not for a big commercial facility. You just don't want it to compact like that. Right. That makes sense. Uh, you spoke about how difficult certification and getting permits can be for starting a, a central composting hub. So the decentralized system seems to be working for you. Were there any other hurdles that you encountered along the way or are encountering along the way? Oh, constantly. (laughs) It is such a battle. (laughs) Truthfully, it's a pretty high risk company that I'm starting here. Um, We are locked out of getting feedstock, hauling organic waste from most cities, even though most cities aren't complying with mandatory organics recycling regulation. And we have an opportunity here, <laughs> you know, but the exclusive franchise hauling agreements um, trap cities to force them to send that material to landfill. 
Um, I do think there's a lot changing this year and in the coming years in terms of making community composting more legal. But as of right now, we're operating in a few loopholes and really relying on gray area and our do goodiness to make this possible. (laughs) Right. So we need our, we need our uh, advocates and, and activists out there to help legislate, you know, move legislation forward to get those things in place. Yes, help us. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's so it's, it can be so easy, but it's become, it's so difficult. I've heard this, the horror story. So uh, let's talk about compost itself for a minute. You and I have both studied with Dr. Elaine Ingham, the famous soil food web scientist. Do you have any takeaways from those courses that stick with you or that you keep in mind as you make compost today? Oh my gosh. Elaine Ingham (laughs) is my legend, my major industry girl crush. She's pretty amazing. She's really amazing. You know, what really sticks with me is she went over this study that was done in, you know, 2003 or something like that, where somebody took 3 million soil samples across the world and tried to determine if we truly are lacking in any sort of nutrient just like on average throughout the whole world. And it was found that there is enough nutrients in all of the soils of the world to grow plants for hundreds of thousands of years. So we're really not up against any sort of, oh, you don't have nitrogen, you don't have potassium, you need to throw a bunch of chemical fertilizers in there. We're really just lacking in the biology Mm -hmm. and making sure that we can release those nutrients to our plants. So, right. Because the biology is the thing that makes nutrients embedded in soils available to plants. Right. Right. But there's such a, you know, almost like propaganda where (laughs) people are told that they just need more potassium and everything's going to be fine. And that's probably not the case. They probably need biology in right. almost all cases. It's almost always there. It just needs to be released. It's locked up in, in the soil. And right. it's a that's a huge thing. So yeah, I think my one of my takeaways from her, <laughs> outside of just having my brain fried by how yeah. much knowledge <laughs> comes out of her without having to look at reference materials at all. So the the thing I I think of from that class, and it's this nerdy nerdy thing is that the, it's not that the microbes determine the soil pH in a way they do, but it's, it's that the plant tells the soil what pH it needs to be from the exudates that it puts Mm -hmm. out. And that is like, what, you know, so it'll put out humic acids if it needs to be more fungal and, and what's the other one for bacteria? I can't remember. Anyway, um, it's, it, it puts out those exudates and then that helps build up the either fungal dominant or bacterially dominant populations in the soil. And then that sways the pH either to alkaline or, or acidic. And it's like, this is why right. we like, you don't use gypsum and, right. and, and sulfur and all of those things. Just put the biology back in the soil and the plants yeah. will get yeah. it to do what it needs to do. I love that. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Just the communication that we're, you know, discovering. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
So thank you for indulging me in that little nerdy moment there. (laughs) Oh, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) Well, you know, I have been trying to eliminate the word waste from my vocabulary when talking about compost ingredients. Uh, And I see on your website that you have the word in quotes, which kind of implies (laughs) that we're on the same line of thinking. It's not waste. It's it's, it's biomass. It's, yeah, it's nutrient, it's ingredients, it's biomass. It's like, it's yeah. not waste. And mm-hmm. so why might people want to rethink this word? Well, selfishly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really trying to push that we're not um, in the waste management sector. We're in the nutrient management sector. Oh, I love because, that. right? <laughs> yes, that's great. Because, you know, from a policy standpoint, maybe those shifts in kind of like our societal vocabulary would shift how people regulate us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we probably shouldn't be regulated in the same way that a landfill is regulated, which is how it is right now. Right. Exactly. Be regulated like we are returning nutrients to the soil. You know, if there's some runoff from our site, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's leachate. That's not bad. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> I love it. Right. So for people listening, I think if you want to switch the word waste to biomass or nutrients yeah. uh, or ingredients, that would be the way to start shifting. And, you know, for me, in my house, we have two buckets on the counter. One is for the compost bin and one is for a worm bin when we have it going. And, or right now we have a biogas digester that we, that's hooked up that I know you wanted nerdy. You got nerdy. Um, Very interested. <laughs> so we have a biogas digester and any clippings from, you know, chopping off the tops of carrots or whatever that doesn't go to the chickens, which have first priority over food scraps that are still edible, it goes into this biogas. And so then we're cooking off of that instead of, you know, natural gas coming out of the pipe. So to me, it's never waste. Even if it goes in the bucket, it's not waste. It's being put to use somewhere on the property, either to feed my hens to feed the compost bin or to feed the biogas. So food is another way you could call it, I guess, instead of waste, right? Yeah, yeah. I think also people have another misconception or, well, it's not necessarily a misconception because it, it is true in some cases. People think of compost as messy or smelly, that it attracts bugs or vermin. So what do you suggest for people who are afraid to compost for these reasons? Well... There's a lot. My biggest suggestion is to go to vermicompost if you're going to do it in your backyard. It is so, so, so simple. Those worms munch all day long. So if you just put a thin layer on the top, it's just the easiest way to do it at home. Um, You're going to have soil really quickly. The other option is you just have to pay attention to it. You have to kind of treat it like a living organism. So Mm -hmm. You know, so often, and honestly, I even did this a few years back when I was trying to have a backyard pile where I would let it dry out and then I'd be kind of confused as to, wait, why isn't this composting? You really have to keep it moist. You have to turn it. You have to take the temps. You have to, you have to treat it like, you know, one of the chickens where you're not going to just leave it for seven months. (laughs) Right. (laughs) check on them every once in a while. It needs attention and it needs turning because like you said with the, well, this is where we're going to talk about anaerobic bacteria because anaerobic bacteria are responsible for the smelly part. So talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is just so human and so, you know, ingrained in 
planet earth is that our nose knows when it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. So if it smells like a forest or it smells like things are breaking down in a way that is kind of sweet and you're kind of like, Oh, that's really interesting. That's good. Your compost is doing really well. If suddenly you walk out and you are like, man, it smells like barf. I need to go inside. I really, really hate this. That means something has gone wrong and you want to fix it. <laughs> right. Cause the, the, when there's like, we talked, you talked about having needing to have more space between particles, having bigger pieces and that kind of thing. Cause anaerobic bacteria comes into being when there is a lack of oxygen in the compost pile. So turning the pile, it keeps it aerobic instead of anaerobic, but also having enough diversity of particle size in there helps do that. And the mix of browns and greens, right? Right, right. And if you really don't have, you know, two or three inch mulch that you can throw in there for airspace, you can always poke holes in it with some sort of, you know, piece of rebar or something like that. So you can just get little air holes everywhere in there. And it's pretty quick when you, when you smell something anaerobic and you turn it, it can turn a aerobic very quickly and those smells will go away. Right. Um, Cause but, anaerobic bacteria dies in the presence of oxygen. Yeah. Pretty much. Right. Which brings up another question. What do you use in your big composting operation for Browns or are you collecting, are the, the companies that you're, you're collecting from also giving you their paper waste and that kind of thing? We do get paper waste. Um, we do get some green waste from the bigger companies that have like landscaping mm-hmm. in the front of their, you know, hotel or whatever. We also get a lot of chipped green waste. Anytime the campus, you know, trims a tree or something, they'll, they'll chip it and bring it by, which is really great. That's awesome. Yeah. Waste reduction. They're going to you instead of the landfill. Yeah. (laughs) God, I feel like we could talk about this all day, (laughs) Uh, but it is tip time. Uh, Do you have a favorite tip that you would like to share with the gardener audience? I do. It's half an unpopular opinion, half a tip. So Unpopular opinion is there are no such thing as weeds, only early succession plants. Uh So (laughs) if you have a lot of weeds or you're finding yourself weeding a lot, um, that's a really good indicator that you have a bacterially dominated soil and you need to uh, revamp with, you know, higher food rung biology. So the protozoa is the nematodes, the fungus. So, so yeah, that's my tip. This, this really expands on what I was mentioning earlier about how the plant determines its soil pH because it is correlated. Mm -hmm. So alkaline soils are, we're getting really nerdy here. So alkaline (laughs) soils are what you find in grasslands, which is what you said about lower early succession. Is that what you called it? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So early succession. So if you look at a piece of land, you know, before we were here, it's, it's that the the grasslands dominate, dominated in early, early development. And those soils are very bacterial, but as they start to grow more perennial things like uh, shrubs and then trees, the soil becomes more uh, fungal dominant and therefore more acidic. And so, (laughs) so you see in, and this is another one of the things that Dr. Elaine was talking about is that in fungal dominant soils, there are no weeds because those are the early succession emergent things that uh, come up. 
So, yeah. right. We've got all that in there. And so if you want your garden to be less weedy, put down a bunch of mulch, right? Because that's a fungal food and that helps right. not only cover the earth's skin and protect it and keep moisture inside, but it also starts to bring in more fungi, breed more fungi. Yes. Or feed them anyway, so they can expand, which is cool. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great tip, uh, Naomi. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm, well, thank you for being a guest on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast. How should people find you or where can they find you? Our website, thecompostgroup.com. And then we're on Instagram, LinkedIn. We have our actually side-by-side garden study. I think we post about it every Friday on our Instagram. So at the compost group and then Facebook, LinkedIn, all just the compost group. Awesome. All right, garden nerds, you'll find links to the compost group on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also post their social media feeds and links to how you can buy their compost. Is oh, I should ask, is that still happening? Is are you oh, selling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Compost. <laughs> <laughs> so forgot about that plug. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, so and and links to where you can buy their compost. So you are selling the compost. We didn't talk about that, right? We are. We are. Yeah, we sell it. Um, our name is Second Life Soil for that. Oh. That's so great. So we sell half inch mulch um, that has been composted. So a bit inoculated already a fine compost and potting soil made with coca core from an aquaponics farm. Sweet. Cause koi yeah. is recyclable. I mean, renewable, it's not, um, you know, scraping off peat bogs and destroying the planet. Yes. No. <laughs> I digress once again, <laughs> but that's it. That's it for this week. Garden nerds subscribe to this podcast on Apple podcast or wherever you listen, visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on garden nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under garden nerd one on Facebook as gardennerd.com. And of course our garden nerd YouTube channel, happy gardening.